Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody. And welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from PersusGrown.com. This week, we recorded the episode on Sunday. But unfortunately, the TG, GB, and Monkey couldn't make it to the show. So it was just me, Zombie, and Marge. So instead, I have edited the Neil Woods interview fully. Uh, but I just wanted to cut in before that interview starts so I can tell you about some of the recent news that I want you all to get involved with. So uh, we hit the 1K subscribers on YouTube. And if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, then go over there, hit subscribe, because we always want more subscribers. So that's youtube.com slash high on homegrown. So you can catch us live every Friday and every Sunday on our YouTube channel. So if you subscribe and ring the notifications, then you're going to get reminded of when our next show is coming up. So check that out. Make sure you subscribe. Also, we have uh, new sponsors over at Perseus. We've got the HLG 350R Diablo comp coming up. And you need 100 posts to enter that, which opens on the 1st of November. So make sure that you're a member of Perseus and you have 100 posts to enter that comp. And then coming after that comp as well, shortly after, it's not going to be very long, we're going to have our annual Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament. The next show is going to be Halloween special. We're going to tell some ghost stories and talk about some scary stuff and things like that. It's not going to be the, the regular structured show, which we usually have. So after the Halloween episode, everything's going to be turning to the usual structure of the cannabis news and things like that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Apologies about uh, episode 65, I think it is. I don't know, this week's episode not being released in full. But, but, but you know, this is high on homegrown, man. It's okay sometimes if we're missing one panel member. We've got three panel members missing from the show. It just doesn't feel like high on homegrown without the, you know everybody being there. So I hope you enjoy this. And if you're enjoying the show that we put out as well, then uh, please head over to iTunes or Spotify, whichever network you download the podcast from, and leave us a review. If you're not enjoying it, then don't leave a review. That's not cool. <laughs> but if you are enjoying it, then go over there and, and hit you know five-star review. Let other people know what, what you like about the podcast and things like that. And that helps the show a lot. It helps you get out there. The, the algorithms enjoy that kind of thing. So thanks, as always, for your epic support. Stay high on homegrown. And here's Neil Woodard to you. We'll see you next week. So you used to be a undercover police officer. Yes. Specifically busting drug gangs. Heroin was the main thing, right? Yeah, I my job used to be catching drug dealers, yes. Um, but primarily it was the heroin and crack cocaine markets that I operated in. So it's uh, a bit more intense than just cannabis. Do you, do you see that there's a difference between dr- gangs that run cannabis and gangs that run class A's? Oh, certainly then. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, cannabis was never a target. It was never a target operationally or strategically. Mm. Um, but, um, and yeah... Traditionally, I mean, most cannabis trading is done socially, isn't it? It's it's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's part of part of the community. It's not it's it's not generally. Um, but having said that, you know, there is a big big swing towards organised crime grabbing slices of that market. You know, so that mm. as as you as I'm sure you're all aware, um, 
that traditional community spirit is is distinctly under attack by the growing by the grow of, of organized crime because organized crime want to control all the markets yeah. and so now you you've got um these massive grows which which uh some of the west balkan gangs have set up yeah. and you've got chinese players well weirdly setting up in, in the uk as well um so yeah you've got all these organized crime groups trying to dominate the market and um well, you know, that's prohibition mm. for you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the main problem, isn't it? The prohibition, if it was controlled properly, like any other organisation, then we wouldn't have so much crime. Mm. Yeah, exactly. As Ian Fleming uh, said, um, prohibition is the mother of crime. And he, he said that very well. You know, he said that before, uh, way before the single conventions came in and our misuse of drugs act. You know, he, he, he predicted the violence that would follow like many people did. Mm. So why did you become a police officer? Was it something you always wanted to do? No, no, I wasn't one of those kids that wore plastic little policeman's hats or anything. I wasn't, I wasn't one of those, you know, I wasn't one of those people who saw myself doing that. Far, far from it. I, uh, I was more into really geeky stuff like um, just music and Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. So uh, I, it just didn't appeal to me. Um, mm. But then I went to university by mistake. Which was, by mistake, <laughs> yeah, by, by mistake. Because uh, whatever, whatever made me think I would be interested in a business studies degree, I've, I've got no idea. I, I try and place myself in my young head, and I'm, I just can't imagine what I was thinking. Because within three months, I realised it's the most boring thing on earth. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I dropped out, and quite a few of my friends dropped out as well at the same time, and they did exciting things like going backpacking around Europe and fruit picking, that kind of thing. So I thought, well, that sounds fun. I'll have a go at that. And then I saw the advertisement for police and I thought, well, you know, if I'm after something that's different every day, then that, that, would, that would be different every day and it would be challenging. So I couldn't make my mind up, so I flipped a coin. Yeah. <laughs> and it came, up, it came up heads. It came up heads. And wow. So, Such a big life-changing decision right there in that flip of the coin. Yeah, yeah literally, literally flippant. But, I mean, having, having said that, it might, it might have been a flippant way of... Um, of going into it but I, I got into the into it quite quickly and I really wanted to do something good help people mm-hmm. do positive things um, and fight crime you know I, I, got, yeah. I did get into it. Is it how long was you a police officer for before you became undercover uh, drug enforcement? Uh, four years now the, the first two years in the police uh, you, you're in what you call the probationary period where you can lose your job at the drop of a hat and and I almost did lose my job several times because I was crap. I was a I was a terrible, <laughs> I was a terrible uniform cop. I really no genuinely, I really was. I just I didn't. I was nineteen. I didn't realize how young, how naive I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how sheltered I'd been, and I didn't deal with conflict very well. In fact, far from it. I was I was really poor at it. So wow. I, I only stuck with it for the first two years just to try and prove myself. I could survive for that two years rather than any long term desire. But then I held on carried on and after the four years got an attachment to the drug squad um and it was there that one of them suggested to me that i have a go at um at undercover work which but that was 1993 and that kind of undercover work hadn't happened in the uk before i mean you know high-end undercover work had but not there's not sort of starting at the ground level mm. amongst drug dealing mm. gangs so that was very new um obviously in the united states there you, you've been doing that kind of things that you know Busting dealers on corners in that way since the since the nineteen seventies, but it hadn't it hadn't got to the UK by that stage. 
But it, it must have been scary, though, right? You being like the first team to do something like this in the UK to try and infiltrate drug gangs. Was you eager to do it when they offered you this deal? Yeah, I mean, I was I was young and wanted, you know, I was. It was exciting to start with, to be honest. And to be honest, the first the first time I did it, it wasn't that difficult really because they didn't see the tactic coming. You know, they didn't know that the cops were out there um, right. doing this kind of stuff. So, so to start with, it was relatively easy. But because at that time there was such enormous political pressure to get results and. The, the Home Office put out a directive at that time to all the constabularies to, to make um, drugs investigations the number one priority. But number one, more than sexual violence, domestic violence, or any of these other things, the Home Office said your number one priority is drugs, with a particular emphasis on heroin and crack. So, so the cops were under real pressure to get results. And suddenly, mm. you know, it's like seeing pound signs. You know, they, they suddenly saw that this was a way of getting huge results quite cheaply. So... From that initial success, uh, that really changed, the, it dictated the next 14 years of my life because, you know, a few days operation was then a few weeks and then I was doing no less than six or seven months at a time. And Oof. yeah, I mean, it, it was dangerous. Yeah, it was. There was so many scary times, like answering the door to a dealer who, who I thought trusted me because I'd been dealing with him for quite a while and uh, opened the door, he put a, a samurai sword to my throat. Nice. And... Um, Oh. And he's just he's screaming. He's, he's blood red in the face, really angry, and he's screaming at me. And this like spray of saliva hitting my face as he's screaming at me. And I can feel the like cold of the sword against my throat. I thought Shit. this is it. And he's saying, "You're fucking drug squad. You're fucking DS. You're fucking drug squad. I know you are." So I'm thinking, wow. well, I suppose it was it was fun while it lasted. And <laughs> and then I heard this woman laughing, and uh, this woman stuck her head out from behind him, and she says, "Wow, I thought he was going to say he was then." <laughs> yeah. the two of them just laughed they pissed themselves laughing and yeah did you piss yourself laughing. laughing as well no he just pissed himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know did, yeah, did maybe, you actually think at that point that you'd been caught it was they do you yeah, think he I mean, was I actually going to cut you yeah because I, I mean i knew he was an unpredictable and violent chap so right. I, I knew there was some possibility of it but Oh. But he was just winding me up, or, or maybe he was. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of the more aggressive people, what they do is they they like to occasionally put you in your place and remind yeah. you that they're the person to be scared of. You know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So what happened from there? Did, did you've you've gone into the house and laugh and joke, ha ha ha? Oh, um, I asked him for half a tea, uh, and he then he had a go at me because he didn't have weights measured out in those. Half a tea. The, What's half a tea? Half a tea. It's half a teenth. Which okay. Is wow. Small amount. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's the kind of it's the lingo for trading heroin. Um, you know, you talk talk about teens, half teas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Henry's, all those kind of things. Um, but half a tea is, is around a uh, 0.8 of a gram. Uh, and then he so he 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 just said no, I haven't got anywhere near that weight. So I just asked him for four four ten bags, and. That's probably more detail than you needed, really. But anyway, yeah. I put the four the four foil wraps in a, in a cigarette packet and put that in my pocket. And as I looked up from doing that, I looked up, I've got a knife pointing to my belly. And there's a guy in front of me said, give me that, mate. So I managed to get out of the dealer where he had the samurai sword to my throat to come out to someone to try and rob me for the heroin I'd just bought. Yeah. The, the fuck? fuck? Yeah, that frying pan and fire and all that. 
So, so I said, mate, gone through a bit too much to give you this. Sorry. And I started running backwards a bit. And, and the funny thing is, as I start to run away and try and sort of hide, get away from him behind this car, uh, this, this parked car, he says, no, no, mate, no, just come here a minute. <laughs> no. <laughs> so did you go to him? <laughs> no, no. Th- th- thankfully, um, I might have been pretending to be a problematic heroin consumer, but yeah, yeah. I could. But I, I, I was still able to run pretty fast at that point. Passed the police fitness test. <laughs> Were you in situations like this often? Yeah, more often than I probably want. Um, mm-hmm. But it was funny. It's funny, you know, when you because. I had a lot of these happen to me between in my twenties, you know, between the age of twenty three and uh, like thirty. M- more later as well, but in in my twenties, when I, I had these dangerous things happen, I found myself being able to think really clearly, and you know, because people have people deal differently when they have a surge of adrenaline, mm-hmm. and I, I what I found is. When I had a surge of adrenaline, I, I just got this, this sensation of time slowing down and having all the space and the time to think, mm. which is obviously an advantage if you want to think clearly and think your way out of a problem. Mm-hmm. But I've come away from these things afterwards and these near misses, these near death experiences. And, and I thought to myself, well, wow, you know, so I'm, I'm one of those people who can cope with this. And as a young man, it was a real ego boost. I'll bet. You know, I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I can do this shit. I can do this shit. And then, of course, I got a reputation and my, a reputation with my peers, and yeah. and you love it, don't you? Yeah. You know, if you and, and you know, we all like to think that we're developing and becoming good at something, but it's sort of it's it's bitten me on the arse, really. That that sort of cockiness as a young man, because I'm now diagnosed with chronic PTSD, and all of those instances uh, have created have, have contributed to that. But, you know, so I can look back on being that cocky young man and, and, and think now that, wow, you know, if, I, if only I'd realised. Do you course, regret it then? Do you regret being a police officer? No, I don't regret anything. Right. I mean, there's many experiences that are harrowing that, mm-hmm. that I perhaps would be better off not having experienced. But I don't regret it because, you know, we have to go through the journeys we go through, don't we? Mm-hmm. However difficult. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now... You know, I just I know I'm doing what I need to do, so I can't regret. You can't regret your journey, can you, really? No, that's it. it makes who you are on the way. Yeah, it, yeah. It's easy for people, especially on our side of the law. You know, us uh, cannabis users. It's easy for us to not like police because we're always a target. But we easily forget the amount of other things they do to keep people safe, and and you know they do a lot of hard work and suffer from PTSD for it. You know, they've got a lot on their shoulders. There's a, a YouTube channel that they're called uh, Ben Pearson. You know that police officer? No, I don't know that one. Yeah, it's a good channel. He tells about uh, things that he experienced while he was on patrol and things like that. It's interesting. I mean, police put up with a lot of shit, man. They see some horrible things. We don't appreciate it very much. Yeah, they, they do. And it's interesting that you, you say that because, you know, policing is always was always meant to be about looking out for all communities and you know in the original principles of policing when when policing was set up in 1829 you probably know this i don't know but the the guy who who invented policing so robert peel he set out nine principles by which policing should should adhere to and should be guided by Mm. and they they work they've always worked and they're as relevant now as they always have been always 
Mm. But the trouble is, prohibition drug policy breaks those principles, mm. and it makes mm. it makes policing dysfunctional. And what the most perhaps the most important one that it breaches is principle number seven, which says that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police are merely the people who wear the uniform. Mm-hmm. They're merely the professional part of that community. Now, that that principle is broken because minority parts of the community, such as people who consume cannabis, are now separated from policing and persecuted by policing. Yeah. So it breaches those principles from 1829. And um, that's one of the key things that we try and argue when we engage with police, uh, you know, as part of LEAP, is that, you know, this is, this is damaged policing. It, it's it's mm-hmm. distorted what policing should be because the policing should, everybody should be, have, be able to have the protection of the law, everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're, if, you, if you have, um, if, you, if you grow some cannabis and someone steals that from you, you haven't got the protection of the law, and that is so mm-hmm. fundamentally wrong. Yeah, it yeah. is indeed. So what changed your mind? Because for years you'd been a police officer on the drug force. What was it that uh, changed your mind and made you see that prohibition wasn't the right way to go? There's loads and loads of things, to be honest. And the problem is, when you're involved in the covert policing world, um, particularly drugs policing, you get so involved and so wrapped up into in the in the in the system and the the culture as well, mm-hmm. because it tends to be the hardest working, most um, obsessive cops who work in that kind of uh, realm, and so you get fired up, you know, with with that sort of jingoistic um, way of doing things. So mm-hmm. I was seeing things and experiencing things that were causing me massive doubts about what I was doing and the rights and wrongs of it but I was really resistant to it you know it was almost like I wouldn't face up to the obvious things that were cropping up in my mind so it took a lot of different things for me to eventually face up to all of all of the things I was witnessing if that makes sense but but a few things there was there was one that there's a guy a vulnerable guy I manipulated into introducing me to the people I needed to meet called Cammy in um, Nottinghamshire. And I spent a lot of time with Cammy. I spent a lot of time listening to him. And he was one of the many people I, I, I realized and learned from the fact that people who are using heroin problematically are doing so because of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just me that says that. There's a huge academic base that, that I'm now aware of, but I was learning that by listening to people. And so he was a vulnerable people, and like most of the people I was, I was dealing with and manipulating. But anyway, at the end of the operation, he got arrested as well because he was committing offences on bail. But when he was in the police cells, he ended up being on minute-to-minute watch, suicide watch. Mm. And... Um, you know, and that's because from his point of view, I betrayed him, mm. which I had. You know, mm. I completely you know, yeah, yeah. job. <laughs> that, that was that was the whole reason you were there to do that kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that ruthlessness, mm. it, it, it damages other people, but it also damages self, you know, because. Yeah. yeah. It, it, so there was all sorts of damaging damage going on to my mental health. But that was one of the things I realized. But then, of course, I suppose the. The one that I quote the most in interviews and in the media and things is, 
is when I infiltrated the Burger Bar Boys and seven wow. months of work, 96 people, evidence gained against 96 different people, six of the really murderous, literally murderous Burger Bar Boys caught, huge, huge operation, hundreds of cops involved. And um, all that happened is the, the, the drug supply was interrupted for only two hours. It was yeah. only two hours before there was a new phone number out there and mm. the story. Now, you know, if anything doesn't express the sheer futility of drugs policing, I, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was one of the final straws for me. I thought that this, you know, this isn't just this isn't just futile. Futile would be bad enough, but this is actually accelerating the violence in the streets, mm, making things worse. And you're putting your life on the line for it when it just to stop the drug supply for two hours. It's not really yeah, working, exactly. And I, and I did. I, I, I was convinced I was going to die on at least two occasions in, in during, that, during that operation as well. They stripped the, me at good point. The, the, uh, you had the samurai sword one, which is two different experiences. Oh, no, different job. The samurai sword was in about 1995, I think. The Burger Bar Boys was about nine years later. Yeah. Oof. So what I happened remember, there? I remember them very well, actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, yeah, what happened? You was at gunpoint, you say? Yeah, I mean, one time they, they uh, I had an inkling that they were a little bit suspicious with me the day before. And on the morning, I, I had been wearing a camera. It got to the stage oh. in the operation where I thought, because you, you don't start wearing equipment until you're really sure that someone trusts you. And I thought mm. they trusted me. But then this one morning, I thought, no, actually, I've got an inkling. I've got a feeling here. I've got a feeling they weren't right with me yesterday. So I'm going to leave the camera off. And I was glad I did because they bundled me into this van, took me to the edge of this park and told me to strip saying, you, you, you fucking eat, man. You're five. Oh, you're five. Oh, I know you are. Whoa, and, uh, and I remember you. looking at him thinking, you're not old enough to have seen Hawaii five. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, a really other funny, really funny thing that goes through your head. Cause considering that, you know, I'm being told to strip naked and uh, this guy lifts up his shirt uh so I, I knew not to argue lift up his shirt and there's a there's a, a pistol a self-loading pistol some you know semi-automatic pistol mm-hmm. tucked into his tracksuit bottoms and the weird thing i thought looking at them looking at it, thought how the hell are those tracky bottoms <laughs> that gun yeah <laughs> <laughs> i put my wallet in my tracky bottoms today and nearly fell down on the way to the top <laughs> It's just so weird, but it's, it's weird what goes through your head at times like that. It really is, man. And you've been in times yeah. like that more than once. It must be terrifying to think about you're about to lose your life. Well, yeah, I mean, near, near death experiences—they're not—they're not healthy, that's for sure. Um, and they've—they've contributed to my mental health problems uh, later on. But mm. yeah, yeah, I mean, there was there was loads of them really. Um, like more, more than you can even remember, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose I could count them. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but, you know, I've been chased and almost run over the car, and someone found my camera. Um, someone found your camera. Yeah, yeah. Oh. That that was in that was in Leicester. Um, basically, I hadn't got any footage. I hadn't got any corroborating evidence on this particular gangster who I'd been buying from about four months before, and he was a. He was a it was fairly major player, and we needed some corroboration on him. Um, but he wasn't coming out dealing hands on. So I just thought, well, I know 
I know he's into really, he's into his designer wear. I know he's into his clothes. So I got hold of some uh, fake Stone Island jackets, some counterfeits. And I put a call into him saying, okay, mate, I've got some clothes for you. I know you're going to like it. So that tempted him out. So that worked. But the trouble is he came with two other guys I'd, not, I'd never met before. So, so the guy I traded with previously, he says, what, you just want to sell me these or do you want something while I'm here? I thought, well, I'll have some white from you. Uh, if you if you carry in, yeah, I'll have a 20 stone. So, so he sits back in the car and starts slicing up this little bit of crack from his massive block. And uh, but that meant his his mates were there, just looking at me in suspicious, looking at the jacket. <laughs> and one of them just pushed me up against this fence and said, "How long have you known him for? How long have you known him?" And I'm saying, "Well, I've known him for months." Shouting to the car, saying, "Tell him." Anyway, he's searching my clothes and he's found he found the camera. Now this is not James Bontak, you know. It's not. There's there's no doubt what you found when you found it. There's mm. there's a little metal. Um, button on a on a denim jacket you know the kind of metal stud buttons yeah mm. there's a little hole in there and there's a little camera winking at him because he's found oh, it oh gosh yeah. <laughs> so he says he is an old man he's fucking heat man he's fucking heat so i was in a secluded car park there was no one there God and i was at right at the opposite end from the from the entrance like a real distance away so and there was no witnesses so I knew I was in really, really serious trouble. Now, if I'd run, tried to run away, then they would have chased me down. It's like you don't run from a pack of wolves because they'll get you. So, so what I had to do is I basically thought, I've got to slow down how long it takes him to convince the one that I know that I'm not who I seem to be. So I'm going to have to break that line of communication and stop him communicating with it. So what I did is I just launched into this abusive tirade at him. I said, it's not my fucking clothes. What are you fucking doing picking at my fucking clothes? It's not even my fucking jacket. So I don't know what they're fucking on about. You, you fucking, and just fucking launched at him in this all this abuse about what he's doing with my clothes and shit. So, and then I snatched the jacket and slowly folded up this, this item of clothing, go as slowly as I could and slid it into the plastic bag and, started walking away really really slowly keeping up this torrent of abuse now it also it stopped him convincing his mate of who i was but also it shocked him completely because he wasn't expecting that reaction hmm. so he so he could sort of it, it made him sort of doubt himself because yeah. of my reaction and so i gained me a few extra seconds and so i carried on walking carried on shouting and then i hear running coming behind me something about halfway across the car park so i think oh, shit, if I spin around and punch one of them, maybe that'll give me enough time to sprint and get to the to the road. Or maybe it would just piss them off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I spun around, and it's the guy I know. And he's come running after me saying, hey, don't you want this ting? And he's got this little piece of self, uh, of cling mm -hmm. trying to wrap it up, saying, don't you want the ting? Oh, shit. And he says, don't mind my mate, he's a dickhead. And I no said, way. yes, he is a dickhead. He's a <laughs> fucking dickhead that picks up. <laughs> about. But, but then so he's holding out this crack. I'm thinking, you really want to sell me crack now? Are you fucking yeah, kidding me? <laughs> I'll take the 20 quid out and all the exchange is caught perfectly on the camera, just just to, just, just for the icing on the cake, I suppose. For 20 and, um, pound as well. Whoa. Yeah, so, uh, so he's screaming at him. Mate, he's fucking heat. I'm fucking telling you. So he goes back and I walk to the edge of the, 
uh, car park thinking I'm going to escape. And then I hear the wheels spinning. So finally he's convinced him of what he's found. And he comes roaring after me. So then I just start running and I start running. I get, I get to the, to the road and it's actually, a, it's actually a dual carriageway. It's part of the inner ring road in Leicester. So I was running, sprinting along the pavement. And then I get to this roundabout where it's quite nearby, where, you know, the, where you get a roundabout in a dual carriageway, you get a metal railing, which separates the footpath from the road. Mm-hmm. It's one of those. So I just get to that point and the car go, can't go any further. It's been coming up the pavement after me. Whoa, so it must have been within, it, it scrammed the brakes on to stop crashing into the barrier. It must have been no more than two metres away from me when it did. So I was a second or two away from being squashed there. Whoa. Anyway, I started walking. Then it was quite easy from that point for me to then get to the pedestrian area. So I wasn't that far away from safety at that point. So I did that and they went around the roundabout staring at me a couple of times. And then anyway, I went back to the safe location, did the debrief. Handed the, handed the drugs over and told them about it, told them the registration number of the description. Anyway, the intel guy went and looked him up, came back a few minutes later and said, he was laughing. He was laughing. He says, oh, wow, I don't know why they didn't just shoot you. I says, what? <laughs> he says, yeah, there's loads of intel that they've got a gun in that car. Right. Whoa. So why they tried to run me over instead of shooting me, I don't know, really. Man. That's Very lucky, crazy. eh? No yeah. So this was just another one of the uh, sticky situations you found yourself in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got some balls, mate. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what I mean. You fucking oh, with some dangerous people. Oh dear. Wow. How, how long was your longest mission? Like uh, making friends with these people, getting into the gangs and stuff. Seven months. I did a few six or seven monthers, but I think, uh, yeah, the burgers was seven, seven months long. Seven months with them nutters. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, most of the time it was with more friendly people, you know. I didn't spend that much time with the actual gangs. And in fact, it takes weeks to get introduced to those kind of people anyway. But yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah it was it was definitely, every, every hour with the Burger Bar Boys was an hour too long, to be honest. Yeah, right. scary the whole time, I bet. Yeah, it, it never felt safe, safe at all. It always mm. felt like there was some potentially imminent violence with them all the time. Oh, well, that would be scary. It was them and the bloody Johnson crew, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So That's right, yeah. Stuck in the middle of the pair of them. Yeah, and of course, when I started that operation, it was only a few months after the burgers had killed those two women. Um, oh, yeah. Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris. Oh yeah. yeah, remember that. Damn. In fact, one of the one of the people I was buying off was the person who sourced the guns, and was allegedly the fifth person in the car. Damn. This ain't this geezer that's been shot recently, is it? Galvin or whatever his name is. Uh, I don't know which one's been shot recently. I lose track yeah. of. Yeah, I would say there was there was there was hundreds of them anyway. Well, there was a few of them, but somebody's been shot recently, and he, apparently the the local community is saying he was a long-standing high-up member of the Burger Boys. Anyway. So. Oh right, yes, of course, yeah, that has been quite recent. It's in the last couple of weeks, though, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might have been, but I haven't looked at his picture, so I don't know. So, uh, do you know uh, when we when did you leave the police force? Two thousand and twelve. So two thousand eleven, I think. Yeah. So it would have changed a bit since then. But do you think uh, 
the other there's more police officers that feel the same way you do that the whole drug rehabilitation thing needs to change oh yeah i mean uh when, when I started speaking publicly in about 2015, uh, a joint, joint leap, um, you know, I was public enemy number one by the covert policing world, really. I got lots of um, hostility. But the change in the last few years has been really dramatic. You know, we've had a significant influence on police thinking. There's no doubt about that. Awesome. And I, I only get fan mail from cops now. I get loads of supportive comments from police, loads. No way. And we have loads, loads of people who are uh, serving cops who are, you know, they, they, they're not exactly public members, but they are, they're back behind the scenes and quiet members, if you know what I mean. And, mm-hmm. we, have, and we have lots of people who talk to us um, and let us know exactly what's going on, um, which is, which is really useful, of course, as you can imagine. Yeah, of course. Well, it's, it's good that like you, you, you've got other officers behind you as well, including serving ones as it goes. That's good. Because I bet they're all proper pissed off with the way it's going. Well, you're the yeah, founder well, of the... Leap UK as well, right? It's what, sorry? You're the founder of Leap UK. No, I'm not. I'm not the founder. No, oh, you're I not the founder. Okay. Um, I mean, Leap, Leap internationally is a grow is rapidly growing, a rapidly growing international organisation. Um, obviously, it started in the United States in 2002, and it's it's going from strength to strength there at the moment. I mean, oh wow. That they're really expanding in the US and doing some incredible work. Um, they really are. Uh, in, in Europe, we're expanding across Europe. In fact, we're starting a chapter which is just called Leap Europe, and we're going to have a, a series of launch events. And the reason we're calling it Leap Europe is because, you know, we've got a member in Poland, Estonia. Um, we've got a, an officer in Barcelona, Stockholm. You know, they need somewhere to belong to. You know, they need an organisation mm. to, to become part of the movement. So... It's a good way of helping the expansion. Uh, and we've got uh, Leap France as an individual chapter, Leap Germany, Leap Scandinavia. And, you know, we're growing rapidly. So so the events that we're going to be having to launch the organisation of Leap, Leap Europe, uh, the first one looks like it's going to be in the Netherlands. Uh, we're going to be having three events there, um, which is fantastic because we've got, we've got such good allies in Amsterdam as well. We mm-hmm. have some really good people. They're all chilled uh, out in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, and it, well, it's a great place. The trouble is the police there are not as liberal as you'd expect, though, because they're actually vocal opponents of reform, and that's what we're trying to sort of neutralise mm. in the Netherlands by having events there. Um, because, you know, there was a move to talk about the regulation of MDMA um, right. just, <laughs> a few, just a few months ago, and that was scuppered, really, by police voices. Um and that's the problem we have a lot around the world is that the, the wrong police, because <laughs> we do have lots of support with the police, but there's the other side who who talks openly a, against reform. Uh, so, mm. you know, that's our job really at LEAP is to neutralise that, that narrative. Do you think it's a generational thing? Is it the older police officers who are against reform? No, it's right across the board, to be honest. It, right. um, it, I mean, it depends. Quite often, senior cops... Um, are more political and anti-reform, but it, in terms of age, you know that you've got a combination of people who've who've seen the harms of drug policy and, and are weary of it and want it to change. You know the older cops, yeah. and then you've got some younger ones who who have been exposed to the reality of of of, of drug consumption, 
mm. and don't fall for the old bullshit, you know? So it, it's a mm. mixture of, of, of all the different influences, I think. And, and, you know, let's not forget, police are just a part of mm-hmm. society. And society in general is moving more slowly towards reform mm-hmm. uh, as people become more aware and, and, and understand things better. Do you think times are going to change soon? Do you think legislation is over the, over the horizon? I don't know about the speed of legislation, but the important thing for us as activists or interested parties to consider is that we are a movement. And what we have to do is to just make that movement grow wherever we can. Mm. Because like any social justice issue through history, whatever that social justice issue is, change has come from the growth of movement uh, rather than political leadership. Mm. So whether it's around the death penalty, gender equality, homosexuality, whatever the social justice issue, it's the same with, with drug policy. Change will come through the, through the growth of the social movement. So that's what we all have to be doing, is how can we make that movement grow um, and, and, and how can we make it grow quicker? And when the movement grows to a tipping point, that's when you get more politicians taking it up as a cause. And you could say that that's definitely happening, happening in the UK because, you know, a few years ago, it wasn't long ago, that the only committed drug policy reformer was Paul Flynn, just the one, mm-hmm. uh, bless him, um, the late, great <laughs> Paul Flynn. But, but now there's loads, you know, the Transform Drug Policy Foundation uh, campaign that we were part of this year, the 50-year campaign, uh, they've signed up 60 parliamentarians yeah. who are calling for full-fat reform. Um, and that's significant, you know, that's really significant in a very short space of time. We've got the Labour Drug Policy Reform Group uh, which is expanding rapidly. They're having broader influences. They're doing lots of hard work. We, we speak a lot for them. And then there's the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group as well, headed up by Crispin Blunt. And, you know, five years ago, the existence of those two organisations just wouldn't have been thinkable at all. Mm, right. So that these things are a sign that the social movement has grown enough for politics to start taking notice. And that's, that's, the, that's the way these things work. But we've just got to keep, keep it going. Just got to keep it going. Yeah. I wonder which, which group out of those two, Labour or Conservative, has got the most members? I'm leaning towards Labour, I think. Yeah, la- mm. Labour by a long way. Uh, you know, they've, they've really expanded through their membership. And to be fair, they've done a lot of groups as well, a lot of grassroots meetings. You know, I've, I've spoken for them in places like Liverpool, Grimsby, all over the place. And, you know, they've put a lot of time in. <clears throat> but... Um, but the conservative group have probably got more had more success on the legislative changes and the lobbying behind the scenes. Mm. So, for example, the the uh, the rescheduling of Sardisibin, which is a, a strategically very important move, very important. Um, that's been all. That's all Crispin Blunt's work, really, and that's that them them and drug science and the, and the CDPRG. So, yeah, Labour's membership's growing more. Um, but you know, there's no party that has been good on drug policy for a long time. You know, Labour mm-hmm. have been Labour have been appalling on it as much as the Tories have really. Yeah. Certainly, when they've been in power. So you know, we we have to make sure that as the movement grows, this is a non-partisan issue, and we we need to make sure that parties don't start dividing it along party lines because that will damage the movement. Mm-hmm. They all tend to do that there, don't they? They all tend to divide it along their lines and say, oh, yes, we'll have a bit of that and we don't want any of that bit. 
Yeah, it's all politics, man, all the time. You know, it's like the police are just pawns in the polit- political games. And why do you think that, I mean, cannabis specifically, but drugs in general, why do you think they are illegal still after all this time? Why is it still illegal? Well, mm. I mean, if, if you look at the origins, basically drugs are illegal because of American domestic racism. Mm-hmm. After the Second World War, the only rich country was the USA, and they used that, uh, that, that financial power and the fact that the world owed them money to, to dominate world policy. And unfortunately, their drug policy was based on, on um, prejudice, mm-hmm. extreme prejudice. So you know, it, the cannabis ban in particular was about Mexican people being perceived to be stealing white jobs during the Great Depression. But that aggression, that aggressive foreign policy meant that the world followed their policy, which is just based mm-hmm. on racism. Yeah. But that's not, I mean, and even though, drug, you know, racism is in the DNA of drug policy, it plays out at every level. It's the reason that we're stuck with it is because, I mean, there's various reasons. You know, you've got decades of propaganda, decades of moralizing politicians influencing the public. You've got the media have played their part print media, you know, journalists. But most importantly, and I've, I've come, sort of come to this conclusion in the last couple of years, most importantly, the thing that's slowing down the movement and slowing down change is the fact that the police control the narrative. You know, you've got the police constantly press releasing what they do in respect to drugs policing. You know, they show these images. And it, it, essentially, if drug prohibition was, a, was an international business, it would have the most powerful marketing in the history of business because the police are constantly putting out rep- repetitive images. Mm-hmm. They're putting those, these images of doors being smashed in. They're putting the images of these rows of mugshots of gangs been arrested and the images of drug seizures, you know, all of these posts on social media of, you know, they found a cannabis grow again mm-hmm. and they found another even bigger one and another bigger one, or they've found like blocks of cocaine or they've caught someone with kilos of heroin, whatever it is, they're constantly putting out these images to the public. Now, what this does is it reminds the public there's something to be scared of, but then reassures the public that the police are doing something about it. So mm. they, they believe that current policy must be working. But so again, it's the job of Leap to challenge those narratives. And because it, it's not true, mm-hmm. the, the subtext of what the police are saying is that they're successfully reducing crime, but they're not. They're doing the opposite, which yeah, is which why. Which is why I did that film. I don't know if you've seen it. I did a short film with anyone's child. Basically, it's a, it's to be it's a tool for anyone to use to respond to police social media accounts who claim success with a drug seizure or whether they found a cannabis grow or something. And it's a bit cheeky, you know. It's a bit for uh, for you for you in America, monkey. It's a bit mischievous because you don't use the word cheeky, do you? Really, I don't think. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit it's a bit cheeky, but um, it basically get it's designed to get under the skin of the cops who posted those social media accounts because they're going to know exactly what we're talking about. OK. Um, and so, you know, please look up that video and encourage people to use it because repetition of the messages in that video are working. They are genuinely working. We've had it translated with subtitles in into Italian, French, Spanish, German, even Mongolian. Uh, someone's someone at the moment is translating it into into Khmer, Cambodian. Um, <laughs> so you know it's. That, so what would you search for on YouTube to find that video? Well, if you if you have uh, 
if you have Twitter, do you have Twitter? Uh, yeah, everybody has Twitter. On you, yeah, we have uh, we have so, Twitter. <laughs> but the, the fastest way of finding it is uh, it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure you that I, you could probably find. I'm sure you can find it on the anyone's child website if you want the different uh, translations of it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you'll find it on the on, as my pinned tweet. So yeah, please use that because um, one one thing we need to be good at as a movement is to have message discipline and repetition. It's one of the secrets of any movement. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, man, we checked that out. Sorry, monkey. No, I had a question for Neil. So one thing that I, that I've noticed down in, in the southern U.S. is as different states trying to approach. Well, let's just say cannabis reform. We were not even talking about other drug reform at this point is frequently the police unions come out against it because if we reform these things, it, they lose the right of a probable cause search. In other words, they, they can't say, I think I smell something in your vehicle. I need to search it. It gives them basically carte blanche to just basically do whatever they want in, in a situation like that. How do you feel about that? overriding power that the police officer suddenly has to basically do whatever he wants to because he thinks you might have something in your car. Yeah, I mean, similar arguments play out here when we talk about the powers to stop and search people uh, because, and you get cops all over the world say very similar thing that this is one of our most important policing tools for catching bad people. Right. Uh, the trouble is they don't distinguish between any, anyone who, who, who does any kind of infraction, you know, they're lumping together people who consume cannabis with people who commit armed robberies. And, you know, that's, mm. dealing with that sort of cognitive dissonance is, is, it, is difficult sometimes. But, I mean, how do I feel about it? Well, yes. you know, I, as, a, as a young cop, I didn't care about liberty. I, didn't, I just cared about doing my job and I was, you know, and making secure, uh, communities more secure. So I was, I was more security versus liberty. Mm-hmm. Now I realise that it, it is the attempt by the state to infringe on that liberty which has got us into this mess. And so, I'm, you know, I'm a, a big flag waver for John Stewart Mill nowadays and all things liberty. But, you know, we've, we've got to challenge that perception of police. We have to. We have to. Um, and it, and if, you, if you remember, I mentioned Peel's principles, you know, police are not getting the cooperation of a significant proportion of your community right for crimes that do matter yeah because policing needs the cooperation of the community and the the cannabis consuming percentage of the community is huge Mm -hmm. so those police officers are missing out on the the partnership with and cooperation with an enormous percentage of that community which that in itself makes the community less safe Mm -hmm. so you know the leap speakers in the usa they deal with that kind of approach really, really well, and they speak on it really, really well. So, if you, if you any, if you know any kind of community organisation anywhere, anywhere that could host a leap speaker, you know, it'd be easy to get one invited to, as to as to where where you wherever you are, whatever state you're in. Nice. I think I will look into that. Thank you. Do you have a place in Ireland as well, a leap uh, section in Ireland? No, we don't. We don't have any members, but we are. Uh, at the moment, in the early stages of planning a um, a trip to Ireland. Now, there's going to be one event in Northern Ireland, which we're actually quite far away along in planning. We're going to be doing one in right. 
in Belfast, but I want to do one in Dublin and hopefully somewhere else in, in Ireland as well. Um, I'd say Cork would be a good spot. Cork. Outside, outside of Dublin, Cork would be, would be a good spot. Yeah, Cork would be great. I'd mm. love to see it as well, to be honest. I'd, I'd like to yeah. I'd two like birds, to... one stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Although most of the time, you know, I do I do so much traveling and people say, Wow, how exciting you get to do loads of traveling. But you know, most of the traveling I do, I don't see anywhere where I yeah. visit. <laughs> I see if it's a conference, I just see the hotel and the airport and stuff. So, you know, like one one year I went from from uh, I don't know Helsinki to Cape Town to to St Louis and I didn't see any of the places at all just lots of hotels lots of airports but hopefully hopefully I can at least uh, find time for a pint of Guinness in in, in Ireland <laughs> you won't run short of a pint of Guinness over here anyway no so hopefully I can meet you in person um, at some point and we we do have I mean we've lots of lots of really good allies. Um, in Ireland, there's the Analiffy project. Oh yeah, uh, who are who are? I mean, I love them. I love them. Um, they're they do great work. They they do, and and mm. unusually for people who do great work in the harm reduction sphere, they also do good media as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they they're really they're an important part of the movement in in Ireland, and and I and I I'm very fond of those people indeed. So we've, and there are other people as well. So we've we've got all the allies to 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 work with there. So and there's, there's some good politicians in Ireland as well. You know the, the decriminalisation discussion is is way further ahead than most places. It is. It's oh. it's it's gone a bit more backwards. The the guards have um, made it as one of their. The, it's a big thing now. Is the the war on drugs. They're going really, really hard against it, and it's pretty much everybody from the ground up is what they're going to take. They're even um, going around the colleges now, and they're telling college kids that if if they are caught with even a small amount, it will ruin your life because they will ruin your life for do, for wow. taking illegal substances. Mm. So, yeah. well, I mean, it sounds like a timely. A, a, a timely requirement for us to go there and challenge that narrative then doesn't it yeah. it, we do we do have some good politicians that are um behind it um we've gino kenny he's he's pushing for the the bill to go forward now um hopefully we should see some movement but there's great great um the activism in Ireland at the minute is is really high neil it's the highest and the the strongest i've i think i've ever seen it and uh, I, I do think that there's going to be change here. But I, I suspect a change will come in the UK before it'll come to Ireland. Well, you think so? I'm not sure I, about it. You see, you've got, you've got more momentum in terms of um, social justice issues being led by younger people, haven't you? That's, that's, the, that's the fascinating thing in Ireland, I think. So, you know, you've gone from uber conservative to uh, bringing in gay marriage and mm-hmm. legal abortion, like, it, it's such a rapid change. That is yeah. something to up and take notice of. And, and that's the thing that's, that, that's one of the reasons I really want to get to Ireland because the drug policy debate really can very easily piggyback that kind of social shift. And I think that could potentially happen much faster than the UK, to be honest. Oh, God, don't say that. It'd be, it'd be taking the piss out of us for weeks now. <laughs> but, 
Right. Uh, paper, scissors, litters, fuck for it. <laughs> <laughs> but but how, how much how much would it help the UK if Ireland, did, you know, suddenly yeah, jumped? Yeah. That? It, what happens in Ireland does have some impact in 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 England and Wales and Scotland mm. as well. And vice versa. Yeah. And vice versa, yeah, because it's it's what I say all the time, Neil. It's when it happens in the UK, it'll have to happen on in, in the Republic because of the north of Ireland. You couldn't have um you couldn't have a an illegal substance on one side and a non-illegal substance on the other. I don't know. That, USA have got it down pretty well. Yep. It's called Canada. Yeah, but Canada's not part, it's not all one island, if you know what I mean. There's still there's 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 a lot of people on the on the island on both sides of the coin. Right. Would look at it as in the island should be unified, whether it should be unified as an island of Ireland or still back in the UK, it's up for grabs, but they still look at it as as the same. And what happens on one side of it should happen on the other. It wouldn't harm harm your chances, that's for sure, put it that way. But there's no guarantees because you know, the United States was is likely to have both Canada and Mexico legal before the, the United States becomes fully legal. I thought Mexico was legal in June. <sighs> well, they're still kind of ironing out some details in that. But uh, you know, they get closer than we are, put it that way. So don't say it can't happen when you ha- can't have legal in one spot and not legal in the next. They, imaginary lines happen very easily. True, true. Actually, when you think about it, look at the states. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very lines. Anyway, no, I mean, it's, it's good to actually have the law enforcement people actually talking about this now and actually hear some things that you're saying, Neil. I mean, it sounds like there's actually some allies on the other side for us. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, when I say it's a growing movement, I mean it. You know, the, the, there, are, there really are allies. I mean, the, the LEAP membership uh, in the USA at the moment is massive. And there's a there's a huge um, backlog of people applying to join, like mm-hmm. enormous backlog. You know that leap are going from strength to strength there. So yeah, yeah. Look up, look up the website and some of the social media. I mean, they do more. Uh, they do more of the American style politics stuff. You know, helping uh, sort of back certain type, certain small pieces of legislation in places. You know, they put their energies into things like that. I mean, I think we do much more public facing media in Europe than the USA but mm. but the USA leap is much bigger and they have a full-time staff employed staff and all sorts so you know they're worth they're working hard for reform on the from the law enforcement side well, I'm very much in agreement with you if we could work together because right now there is a distrust in the states of law enforcement by certain sectors but if we could all work together we'd have a whole lot less problems in the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much encouraged by what you're telling uh, me. Now. The drug laws have just been massively damaging to the police reputation all over the world. Yes. Oh yeah. It's one it's of crazy. the big, uh, it's one of the biggest reasons why people don't trust the police, isn't it? It's because they're always coming after you for what seems like a harmless herb. Would yeah, you- absolutely. And of, and of course, you know, the illicit drug economy corrupts the police as well. It corrupts uh, the criminal justice system. It corrupts mm. entire nation states now. So. You know that doesn't help forge community trust when that corruption is 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 in existence. Mm-hmm. How much of the uh, police work is actually spent, uh, like in percentage, compared to other crime? How much is the police work drug related? Well, it's the most expensive form of policing, and up until about ten years ago in the UK, it was the biggest expenditure. Oh. Uh, because drugs policing is is really expensive. It is. I mean, that's changed because policing priorities have changed. Um, 
I remember speaking to the police and crime commissioner about this in Durham, Ron Hogg, and he was explaining that uh, he was explaining that priorities have shifted, and he certainly changed them. But it's still an it's still an extremely high percentage of overall police expenditure, because it tends to be, you know, it tends to be high cost and it tends to be labour intensive as well. Mm. I mean, if you consider, for example, um, so someone someone finds a cannabis grow, and we see this on social media all the time. Yes. That the that that is so labor intensive to deal with that. In turn it's so it's so time consuming to research it, investigate it. You've got several st- staff members and you've got to dismantle it and take all the evidence, take the clippings and all that kind of thing. You've got to do the file, you've got to get the expert witness. There's, there's so many things. And each one of those cops could have been doing something on their own and dealt with multiple other things while that was mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a percentage of the actual available staff hours for policing, it's absolutely massive. Mm. I did a sort of back of an envelope calculations once to try and work out just how, you know, how many staff hours it took. And it's, it's, it's massive. It really is. Um, and when you consider that there's probably two and a half cannabis grows in the UK for every serving cop. Yeah. And then, oh. and then, and then you consider that it probably takes five cops several hours work every time they find one. You can see just how exponentially futile the whole thing is, can't you, really? Mm-hmm. Well, I always look at it. I mean, the police forces that post their, their, their drug busts, their little small cannabis drug busts on Facebook and so always look at the ones that get like four plants or something and they're going in and they're saying, oh, look, we, we, we captured this sophisticated grow set up. And you look in his tent and he's got a light and he's got uh, a fan and that's mm-hmm. it, basically. And it's yeah, just... It's valued at half a million pounds. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where do they get this from? And why do they want oh, to consider these four plants to be worthy of Facebook? Oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's that's why I did that video, to yes. challenge that. Uh, yes. And, you know, and it's really it makes me really happy when I look on a post and three people have posted the same video because that's oh. repetitive. Well, from, from this day forward, every single time I see one of those those pathetic Facebook posts, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that video up behind it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank, thanks for that. It's great to support. No worries. That. No worries at all. They do my head in, man. I think, well, could couldn't you just be like but this is like stuff that people have um like neighbours have brassed up on though, isn't it? The neighbours have put in a call and said I can smell cannabis from next door or they're dealing cannabis from next door. It's not like they've they've kind of like discovered this on their own yeah how does that work i mean how how would the uh, force usually find out about a grow is it because somebody's grassed them up or the smell of it it depends on what level actually if it's a big one you know you, you get these uh you know you hear of one of being at the top of a disused cinema or something and yeah. there's like there's like ridiculous quantities of plants or whatever that's usually an informant that's usually a paid police informant uh, and I remember um, d- debating this cop on the radio, uh, and he was an informant handler, debating about the, the whether informants should be used or not. And my point was that, yeah, informants should be used for everything except drugs, because what the use of informants does is it just increases the amount of violence. So, you know, if someone is stuck in a police cell and thinks, I'm going to have to grass someone up to bring my mm-hmm. prison sentence down, who am I going to grass up? And they're thinking, well, I'll have to grass up the person who's not likely to torture me to death if they suspect me of grassing them up. 
So, you know, that thought process of going for the lower hanging fruit or the people who are less dangerous, that drives the violence in the streets. But anyway, I digress. But the point is, when I was debating this, um, this detective on the radio, he said that this informant had been paid 14 and a half thousand pounds, 14 and a half grand for information which led to a cannabis grow, which was valued at a quarter of a million. Now, his point that he was trying to make on the radio was that this 14 grand is actually good value when you consider the value of the recovered drugs. Mm. Now, have you ever heard anything so ludicrous? Because that, that all that's done is create a gap in the market. It's only created opportunities for other people to sell. So mm-hmm. it's not, you haven't taken anything from anyone. You've, you've, you've just really, you just, pissing the taxpayers' money up the wall just to add injury, insult to injury, really. Mm-hmm. And so my, a lot, of the, a lot my, of the big ones, they're, they're you know, there are very mercantile, greedy, well, not greedy, but people making a living from grassing people up. Yeah. So that's the big ones. The smaller ones are normally just by accident. Yeah. They're just by accident. They're just, they're coming for another reason. Yeah. They're, they're um, knocking on the door, you know, because a lot of people, who might grow four plants and it's and it's for their own medicine because they can't afford to be paying people all the time. You know, they, they grow that for the, for their own, you know, cause a lot of people grow it because they're not well. Yeah. Someone's growing it. They're not always in the most salubrious and wealthy housing. They're, they're in, they're in housing, which is disproportionately affected by crime. Mm-hmm. And so they're more likely to get a knock on the door because there's crime happened nearby or there's because you know there's some domestic going on in the flat above or there's mm-hmm. you know th- these are the kind of accidental times where people get caught um and they've they you know their their carbon filters aren't as good as they think they are for getting rid of the smell and mm-hmm. you know yeah it, those it's by accident you know there's a friend of mine actually her ex got caught with four plants in a you know just in the four plant tent you know the kind of thing mm-hmm. and they went in there and and they said apparently the cops were like oh no god bloody hell and you could tell they were actually thinking is it enough that we can just ignore it is it is it enough? <laughs> that would be and, awesome <laughs> but, but you know but the thing is around the uk different areas are more likely to just ignore it and like pretend they've not seen it you know, yeah. th- there are there are I mean look Durham County Durham mm-hmm. yeah. the directive to the uniform cops there is you do not target home growers of cannabis you do not target them if you go to an inspector asking for a warrant for a for a cannabis grow that's just someone else someone's in the house the, that inspector's going to say no or awesome. something else mm. and there are other places in the UK where cops will just not will really will not want to find that and they're not going to go looking for it because that's the ethos of that particular constabulary. And then you've got other places like Sheffield or, or, or Liverpool where they're going to always do you because that's what the directive is, is from, yeah. from the top. So it's a total postcode lottery at the moment. Mm-hmm. We might be moving to Durham Boxing. soon, lads. Oh, Ron, Ron, yeah. Ron now, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, yeah my, he was my good friend, Ron. I, I, got, I, got very, I got very good friends with Ron and I miss him a lot. Um, he was a he was a wonderful guy with an incredible legacy, definitely. Yeah. Good sense of humor as well, as it goes. He never stopped laughing. Yeah, I know. You know, 
never stopped laughing. He's a, he was an amazing guy. Is uh, ZN undercover? No, What's going no. on? <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I did respect the man for, for I mean, because he was a politician as well, wasn't he? Um, yeah, so, he was a, yeah, he was yeah. a former deputy chief constable, and then he was a politician. He was a, yeah. and he was a, a brilliant politician, but. He was dedicated to drug policy reform and there's no one who has done as much as him in the UK. I got him to speak for us um, in, in at the United Nations. We had um, LEAP, that is, and yeah. we had a declaration calling for drug policy reform from a policing perspective. And we got him to chair the meeting and it was it was fantastic because he was the perfect person to do that, you know, address the UN in, in Vienna. And... Um, that was that was last time I saw him, and he was having his, his t- he was having his hospital test then, and he knew he was he knew he was seriously ill, um, but he still wanted to do that, and he still kept laughing. Wow, well, well. need more like him as a case. The the police force should take heed of this man. Well, a lot a lot have you know, a, a lot have. He's been very influential, and there are many good people that are working with that are inspired by him. That's good. So you do think things are changing in the police force in the UK, at least? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the UK, reform is being led by the police in spite of politics rather than because of it. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you know, you've obviously got figures like Arvon Jones. You've got Jason Q in Thames Valley. Uh, so, and take Jason Q's a serving cop, uh, but he's championing drug policy reform. Wow. Very, very brilliant, outspoken guy. Good, good mate of mine. Um, and, you know, the police are actually leading reform because the police in many places have brought in diversion schemes. Now, the Thames Valley diversion scheme, the one that they've tried so far is there's not, you don't even get arrested. If you get caught with drugs, you, obviously they get taken off you. You don't get arrested. You get given an appointment to see a drug counsellor to see if yeah. you need help. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. You don't even get arrested. It's a good approach. And it's, it's essentially decriminalisation mm-hmm. and it's completely contrary to government policy. So the police, the police are leading reform. Trouble is, it's not everywhere. You know, as I mentioned Sheffield, you know, they, 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 all, they all need to calm down in Sheffield, South Yorkshire in general. But they've got a police and crime commissioner who's just a, an old 78-year-old dinosaur with this sort of classic drug war mentality. So oh, no. not really. Is that how often does that change? Is he due up for next election or something? No, um, elections were in May. Yeah. So there's another four years to go. But, you know, we, we need to try and get the movement going in Sheffield somehow to, to get a different police crime commissioner. And the, the, the ideal one would be the Green Party candidate for, for Sheffield. And who is that? Well, I, I mean, it might be a different one, but the, but the oh, reason right, is right, right. because the current one is Labour, but it, not good Labour, <laughs> like really... <laughs> Like really not, yeah. Uh, but the best, the party with the dress, best drug policy is actually as part of their manifesto is the Green Party. So where there is a left-leaning city or left-leaning county like Sheffield, uh, South Yorkshire, the natural thing to try and do is to persuade people to vote for another left-wing party, which would be the Greens, for the Police and Crown Commissioner. Yeah. It's just the logical thing to try and do. If you know anyone in Sheffield who wants to get active. I'd say the, shout it out there to everybody on the podcast. You know, if you know anybody, if you know, it, it doesn't specifically have to be a police officer. 
No, the Police and Crime Commission, it can be anybody. Oh, right. um, it, it's common that there are police involved, you know, Alvon Jones and, and uh, Ron Hogg. There are a few, but no, it's, it's normally whoever the local political party puts up for the job. So it's normally, nowadays, I mean, it's, it's normally career politicians, to be honest. But, um, mm. I mean, it may well be that the Lib Dems put someone up that is, um, that is a good selection. You know, whoever in, in South Yorkshire, it needs, it needs people to get organised, I think, and decide who to support and dedicate a campaign to get them voted for. Mm. So you have a couple of books as well, don't you, Neil? I uh, do. Good Cop, Bad War. Yeah. And, what's, uh, what's that one about? <laughs> that, that's a that's a memoir. That's all of my stories, gangster stories and stuff. But oh, cool. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's done well. You could you could legitimately call it a bestseller. Sweet. Um, and it's also um, it's that there's a script in production. I mean, it's not being made yet, but World Productions have the control of turning it into a TV drama. Um, and World Productions are the production company behind Line of Duty and Bodyguard and things like that. So I trust them to do a, to, 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 to do, do a good a, job. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not to just to do a good job, but I also trust them with the, with the principles of it, um, which is obviously the most important thing to me, um, that, they, that they stick with the, the messaging, my messaging. So... I trust them to do that, and I've read the first episode script, and it's look it's looking good so far. So fingers crossed with that. Mm. And then, and then my second book is Drug Wars, which is, I suppose, it's more of a history book. It's a history of UK drug policy and how it's gone wrong over the last uh, few decades. Um, but it's not a dry history book. It, it uses first person narratives from people involved in the rave scene. So we've got an interview with uh, Joey Beltram, uh, Bedlam, Joey Bedlam. If you do you know your rave music? Yes, the Enders. Uh, so Bed Bedlam, as in Bedlam Sound System. Yeah. Um, back from back in the day in the early nineties, and ah. Steve Bedlam is Steve Bedlam is uh, a lovely guy. So he his story's in there. Um, there's Frank Matthews' story in there, who basically uh, life became in danger when he grew up, when he was grassing up corrupt cops in the Met. He thought he was going to get killed by them. Oh. So there's his story in there, which is compelling as well. Uh, he's got a, he's got a hell of a story. He ended up while while Steve while still being a serving cop, he ended up special branch doing a full surveillance on him. So it was like corrupt cops using the mechanisms of the Metropolitan Police to follow him and get dirt on him or or wow. doing harm. It's, oh, it's his, that's real yeah. line of duty shit. There. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, and mm. it's so dramatic. You think, God, surely this can't be true, but it's it's absolutely true. Every bit of it. And he he got a payout. Him and a colleague got half a million payout from the Met from from the damage from corruption that etc. And he had to go into witness protection from his own colleagues. Fuck me. So yeah, so that's, so it's full of stories like that. Drug wars, and I'm 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 more pleased with drug wars because it's become such a useful tool for politicians and policymakers and activists to to have these stories from history and the reality of what's going on you know as examples to quote yeah mm, yeah precedence and shit yeah this is where it goes wrong guys read this paragraph here look that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> always goes wrong never goes right <laughs> so there's some pictures here on uh google 
as well of you in like some red trousers and is that you in like like is that actual picture of you on the job there being undercover yeah that's a surveillance photo oh yeah. the, the, the one with the ponytail the little ponytail yeah and the, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> ravers, ravers top knot you see <laughs> i think i know him <laughs> about that was probably about 94 95 so right early on in, in my um undercover work but so what was your job? Was it just to get the, like, you have the user and then the next level up dealer? Was it for you to get that guy or was you just intending on making your way up the ladder and getting the higher dealer possible? Yeah, it's just working my way up, see how far I could get. But generally my targets were the gangs that were dominating an area, you know. So the people a couple of steps up from a user dealers on the street, the, you know, the um, lower management really, you know, yeah, selling the kilos. No, no, nothing that high. The, well, probably most... kilos of weed. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, I never, I never did any, I never did any work with cannabis. Mm-hmm. I would have, mm-hmm. I would, you know, it was a that was doesn't seem a, as worthwhile at all. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I did deal with a kilo once, um, but most of the largest weights I was doing was would be something like a couple of ounces of heroin or a couple of ounces of, of cocaine. But mm-hmm. I spent a lot more time buying point fours or or teens or henry's or that kind of thing wow so i've been pretty shouted from that kind of shit man i wouldn't even know where to get them kind of drugs it's not difficult to find really yeah Uh, i bet if you just tried it's there isn't it yeah yeah. which just goes to show how much the drug wars have failed over the last 50 years you know it's still easily accessible everything's still easily accessible and more dangerous than ever (laughs) Well, it's got oh, yeah. now where they're using kids to do it, isn't it? And you can't really do anything. But, Police can't do anything with kids. No. I mean, now this. I remember I was only 10 years of out of time up in Dublin not so long ago. I was, um, somebody had to go to a different part of town that I wouldn't normally go to. And some fucking kid about 13 years of age arrived up with me yeah. and stuck down in front of it, down beside his grot. No, I just drove off. Um, <laughs> Can't be dealing with kids. It's Somebody certain. offered because uh, my kid goes to college now. She just started to go to college, and some kids offered my my son some weed. It's like, and he knows that you know I smoke and shit. So it's not like if he wants weed, he knows he can come to me and have that discussion. I wouldn't give it to him. He's far too young. He's in college. I smack him in the head. Say, don't be do. Well, you fuck twenty one. Come and speak to me. Until then, mate. No drugs for you. <laughs> you yeah. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> But it's you gotta have that open approach with your kids, and it so they know that they can come and talk to you when shit like that happens. So you know, mm-hmm. to come back and tell us straight away, these kids offer me weed. You know, it's like you don't even yeah. do that shit. You know, if he gets old enough and he wants to smoke weed, then he knows to ask me for the nice homegrown organic shit, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you can go into any any first year or year seven school mm-hmm. or classroom now and ask them who can get me coke. Pills, <laughs> carrot, <laughs> and say it to them, I will give a hundred quid to the first person who has one of everything back to me. I guarantee you, fucking half of the class will turn up. Well, it's all the way, all available on Instagram nowadays, mm. isn't it? Well, that's it. It's everywhere. It's on Snapchat, Insta. Yeah. It's on fuck, um, TikTok. I think Did you have that one. problem back in your day, there, Neil? Well, no, I think that's the important thing to say, isn't it? That this is, we're talking about change over time. I mean, you just said that, someone just said that drugs are, are just as equally available. Well, actually, the point is that drugs have never been as available as they are now. 
Mm. Um, you know, and that, and that has steadily got more like that since the Misuse of Drugs Act, um, you know, the last five decades. Drugs have mm. become more available, stronger, more dangerous and more varied. Yeah. And, and it's just that's the direction of travel. And, you yeah. know, the fact that kids have such easy access is the greatest, is one of the greatest catastrophes of mm-hmm. the drug policy. Because, it is indeed. You know, oh, yeah. It, it's significantly easier for kids to get hold of any of those drugs that you mentioned than it is alcohol or tobacco. And mm-hmm. you know, was no just going to say. Well, that's it. And then you have the other side of the coin is that a responsible adult who is working as a boat tender, like say an off-license per- clerk, they're not going to sell to an underage person because they're going to lose their job and they lose their license. Yeah. You know, it's. Yeah, exactly. You, because, mm-hmm. because we've got some control. And that and that's that's one of the most important bits of messaging when we talk about reform. We should talk about taking back control because things mm-hmm. are out of control now. And that you know that counters the narrative of people say, "Oh, you just want a free for all for anyone to get what drugs they want." No, no, the free for all is now. Mm-hmm. What we need is control, absolutely control. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't know what you're buying these days either. That would be the main. What's it for control for me? Well, yeah, quality control because you don't want mm. dangerous. You think you get one thing and you're getting poison. Yeah, well, so it's well, like people that are into their cocaine. I mean, in the UK, you're not getting much cocaine for your cocaine these days. Oh, you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at the moment, cocaine is the highest purity it's ever been. Really? Yeah, high nineties percent cocaine is now not that uncommon at all. Oh, wow. Ooh. And that's happening. That's happening around the world. It started. Um, mostly up the west coast of America and particularly British Columbia, places like that. It's like British Columbia at the moment, the majority of cocaine samples are in the 90s percent majority. Oh. And it, it's starting to happen in the UK, loads of seizures. You know, you're not get. it seems it seems to be rare to get less than 75 percent, but it's in a lot of it's in the high 90s. All of a sudden, that's because there's a massive glut of supply, um, stripped back supply routes. Um, yeah, and the, the, the quality is sky high at the moment. Which in many ways is it, I mean, you know, cocaine deaths are up, so that's bad, obviously. Yeah. But a lot of the long-term health problems that come from the adulterants, at least that, you know, those bad adulterants aren't yeah, in yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Levisimol, for example. Mm. You know, Levisimol was in almost every sample only three years ago. But now, from, from what I'm reading, you're not seeing that much Levisimol. So something's drastically changed there about the supply. Wow, <laughs> shocking that is. I didn't, I didn't know that. No, I wouldn't have thought that because it's the it was one of the reasons why I gave up coke back in the day is because it just went so shit. Yeah, well, don't let me talk you back into it. No. Oh, no, Jesus, no, I wouldn't be going back into it now. He's <laughs> a hardcore weed smoker now, nothing else. Yeah, I've always been a hardcore weed smoker. I used to just dabble in a little bit of everything else. <laughs> Well, that's it. You're an adult and you should be entitled to dabble in anything you like as long as you don't have an effect on anybody else. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm into that. Mm-hmm. There should be serious changes coming, but it seems to just take so long, and it doesn't even feel like anybody's listening. Oh, they're listening. Think... We just said we just have to be patient and keep that movement growing. And as yeah. you know, little by little, we just have to be. We just have to think that we are part of a movement, and this movement is growing. And then, then we get confidence in it, and we encourage each other and get inspired by each other to try and keep keep it spreading. Slowly, mm. mm-hmm. we... if we can get the mainstream media on board. That's that's a big, big killer, I think, for a lot of places is when the mainstream media won't even report on the likes of a protest or a march or a, mm, 
Mm. Or does all they ever do is just throw out all the seizures, all the this and the that. Um, not so long ago, we had a, a chap, Neil, who was caught with four euros worth of cannabis. Four euros worth. His name, his address, his entire history was all pulled through the national media. For four euros worth of cannabis. That's not it, that's, yeah. That's it's just it's scandalous, scandalous. So, what's the future plans for you, Neil? What what's going on with Leap? What what's next? Well, it's the events around Europe for Leap Europe. Um, so we're going to be having event the, the events I mentioned in, in the Netherlands. Hopefully, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Barcelona, Paris, uh, maybe Brussels. Another one in London. Oh, <laughs> we got uh, mentioned then. <laughs> 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 yeah and so so we got those um i've got loads i've always got loads of um media things going on we're trying to do a press release for uh environmental issues around cop 26 um god there's so many things going on obviously uh our podcast uh, there'll be a new series of the stop and search podcast coming soon with jason reed um god i'm trying to think well so I'm, I'm speaking at the conservative conference uh, in two weeks Wow, will Boris be there? Uh, yeah, well, he'll be there. I don't think I don't think I'll be meeting Boris, but oh, um, well, just wondering if you pass a message on for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I'll be speaking there. Um, and the rest is just you know it's just just keeping on keeping on really. Lots of political meetings. Hopefully, I'll be getting to a conference in South Africa. I've just done some online training for some Nigerian army officers. Um, cool. That. Because uh, they do a lot of their drug enforcement, um, so I don't know. Next year, there's a conference in Australia I'm involved in. Um, so yeah, there's, there's there's lots of things really. Um, always busy, so yeah, you know, a lot of traveling. Yeah, but if any, so if anyone can support us at, at Leap, you know, anyone out there, then please do. Where um, do you find the link to do that? Just go to leap.co.uk. Uh, our website, the UK website, is uh, at ukleap.org. Uh, the American one is law, law Enforcement Action. I can't remember the full the email address, but if you search... Uh, law this is lawenforcementactionpartnership.org. Yeah, so the uh, oh. the Europe Leap Europe website's being built. That'll be up in a month. Uh, obviously they, have, they have the German one, Scandinavian one. On social media, you can find us on Instagram on Instagram or Twitter at at UK Leap. Uh, my my Twitter is at Woodsy Zero, which is at W U D Z W Zero. Um, I did that before I knew I was going to be have a public profile. That's why it's a stupid, <laughs> stupid handle. Um, and you know we're we're obviously on Facebook and things like that as well. So yeah, support us where you can. And if anyone yeah, out man. there, if anyone out there has uh, maybe a premises they can use or they they want to host or help arrange an event, then wherever we have people on the ground um, who want to host at anyone's child event, we, we do events which are sort of joint leap anyone's child events. And, you know, we, we'll, we'll go anywhere. We've been to small communities in West Wales. Uh, we're, we're doing Leeds next week on the 28th. And... We're really keen to always do those because what we always do is to get local politicians invited, to get local journalists invited, 
you know, local press to cover it in the local newspaper, that kind of mm. thing. And we actually have more of an impact from those events than just about anything we do, because you can win over entire communities yeah. with those events. So, you know, if there's anyone out there who wants to help host one of those, then just let us know. What kind of uh, seating would you be looking at? Uh, how many people in a capacity venue? Well, that's the beauty of it, really. We've, we've done village halls, which have a seating capacity of 50, and there's been maybe 60 people with 10 people standing, or, you know, we've done some that we've, that's had theoretically disappointing numbers of only about 30 people who've turned up, mm. but it didn't matter because the local journalist put us on the front page of the local rag. So, mm. yeah, <laughs> you know, it just, it gives you, it gives you all sorts of opportunities for influencing whole communities. And, you know, there was one town in West Wales where, we had the mayor sat in the front row, you know, with her mayoral, mayoral chains on. And you could see as she was listening and listening to the questions and the debate, you could see that she was becoming completely convinced by the event. Mm. And uh, she basically stood up and declared complete support for full regulation of all drugs. So, awesome. you know, those, those moments are important because any local politician feeds into the machines, which are the, the party machine, you know. The, the, the opinion within parties. So those local events are much more powerful and important than you think. It must be a crazy journey for you to go from, what you know, enforcing drug laws to being on the complete opposite side of the coin. Yeah. How, how does it feel to see all of this progress you're making? Well, it's encouraging, you know. I mean, I'm an optimist anyway. I have to be to keep going. But, mm. um, but it is genuinely encouraging, you know. I'm seeing rapid change. Now, how long it'll take to you know, to that, for that rapid change to turn into legislation and et cetera. It's a lot, you know, we're a long way off, but I can see that tangible change happening. And I review the last five years and it's been extraordinarily fast. So I'm encouraged, you know, and, and, and you and everyone listening should be as well, but we've all just got to commit to, to do what we can, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a strange journey because as I said, I'm a, I'm an introvert. I don't like the attention. This is, I'm doing this because I have to. Mm-hmm. because I feel duty bound because you know because I with the experiences I have they are persuasive so mm-hmm. I have to use them to persuade people so yeah it's an it's a weird thing if someone had said to me I was going to write a book and do media <laughs> and do public interviews I'd have, I'd have, I would have laughed at them you know <laughs> so it's so not me but you know we, we are where we are that's <laughs> right man it's been a good journey good stories yeah. When, when, when you were doing your, your undercover, um, what, what, what did you have in your, your, like, five years from now view? Did you think you'd ever stop doing it? Did you think you'd ever uh, get out alive from doing it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I had loads of moments where I thought I was going to die. Um, I, d- I don't know, actually. I don't, I'm trying to think. As I, I'm just trying to sort of cast my mind back. I suppose... When I was young, starting doing it, I was enjoying it at that phase. So I was probably hoping that I would do it for a long time. Mm. Probably never would have guessed I'd have done it for as long as I did, because that was a really unusual length of time. Most people give up or burn out after two or three years. So, so that's unusual. Mm. Um, you must have enjoyed it, though, to a certain degree, to keep doing it for that length of time. Well, to start with, the first few years, yeah, I loved it the first few years, because I enjoyed the intellectual exercise of lying. I did. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that feeling of daily developing and you know becoming more 
just developing my skills you know we all like to mm-hmm. feel like we're developing mm-hmm. skills don't we you know whatever we mm-hmm. do and yeah i was enjoying that and even even the risks were a buzz you know i became into the adrenaline but it it stopped becoming enjoyable and became more of a more of a grind for duty really in the last few years mm. um and became harder and harder work but and and then I had a bit of a breakdown, so you know, <laughs> great. Yeah. Was that, that because bad? of the pressure? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I was probably PTSD before I knew what was happening. Really, I, I didn't. I didn't know what was happening. Like you didn't that. realize you had PTSD until you had a breakdown. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> How do you treat the PST, PTSD now? Do you see, have medicine from the doctor and things. Uh, I know I've tried all the medication which is indicated for it. Uh, mm. None of None of it suits me at all. Um, have you I've tried had, cannabis? I was just about to ask that. <laughs> I I have, but I, I'm not that fond of it, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I'm just one of those people it doesn't really suit. I mean, I, I like it. It's like, and I've tried different sorts as well. I've, I, I sort of like it to start with, but then rapidly get bored of it and, and mm. found it annoying. annoying. So, um, which is a shame because I'm inclined to drink too much. And right. it would be really handy if I if I use cannabis instead of alcohol because it's mm. so much so much healthier. But I'm one of those people it just doesn't it doesn't suit. I mean, I I, I had some for you know the Channel Four program, Drugs Live. Right. Yeah. I did I did it from there. I did it um where I'm going in a, a brain scanner, uh, an MMR machine. What do you call it? Oh god, an that was Bloody yeah. hell. Oh, yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> the David Nutt thing with uh, you know and um John Snow talked about it being terrible and stuff. So, so I was pleased that I could balance what John Snow said with by saying, "Yeah, this is great fun." And um, and I did, and I, I just I just pissed myself laughing. You know, there's there's there's, there's footage of me just wetting myself laughing on the program. <laughs> all very funny, you know. So so clearly, I am capable of enjoying cannabis, mm-hmm. and I have on on occasion enjoyed it. But the trouble is, you know, sat at home. I, I just get bored of it really quickly mm-hmm. and actually find it annoying. Like it's a presence in my brain that annoys me right? because it isn't stopping quick enough. So right. you know, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's basically a clue that it doesn't yeah. suit me, but I, love it. I, but I honestly wish it did. I honestly wish it did because it would be better for my health. You know, yeah. lots of people have made that transition from drinking to cannabis and, uh, and they've been healthier for it. But yeah. Lots of people are using for PTSD as well. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. And thankfully, I don't drink too much nowadays. But you know, I've had my moments with PTSD. It's mm. because there is a alcohol helps the symptoms. So people drink heavily when they have PTSD. Yeah, I mean, because there must be much, uh, many more situations that give you PTSD, not just the ones you've told us about. Yeah, and part of mine is moral injury as well. It's the it's the profound sense of guilt of having caused harm to vulnerable people. And to and that, that guy in the, what's his name? Uh, Kama, Callum, what was it? Kami, Kami, yeah, but there's loads, yeah. there's loads of others as well, you know, mm. and I've, I have a, you know, it, it, it just makes me feel grimy um, yeah. when I have that kind of PTSD attack in that, in that regard. Um, do you know where any of them are now? They all stood in prison, some got out of issue. The sad fact is most of them will be dead. Oh, yeah, true, very true. That, them kind Statist- of drugs, yeah. Statistically speaking, um but you know i i hope i hope not and um i think I, at some point when i'm ready i think i might 
do a journey and try and look for some of them to be honest that would be mm. that would be a useful thing to do for for a few reasons but um i don't know i don't know how long you go on normally um with, with these things chaps it's lovely chatting with you but oh yeah we we go on for however long it takes really <laughs> but um, i mean if you've got things to do then that's absolutely fine neil we know we know you're very busy so if you have to go yeah yeah i mean you you are lovely people to chat with uh, and i very much appreciate uh, you inviting me it's nice to have a more relaxed sort of um a chatty conversation you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's, it's much more relaxed than, than, than yeah. many podcasts which seem like wow. well, just get the main points out you know yeah thanks than... that, that's what we aim for we rather have a conversation and follow where the conversation goes because they seem you can have a list of questions the questions yeah. come as the conversations do and you go to different places you hear different parts of the story you don't hear on other podcasts they're just more laid back you know yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Do, do you, any of you go to the, the, any of these events, like the Product Earth event? Yes. Yeah, a couple of the guys were there. Zian here was there himself, yeah. He was. Uh, that's, that's cool. I've been to a few of those. I went to the one in Birmingham previously, and I've been to another one. But the one I went to this year, that was really impressive, I thought. Did you go to pro this Product Earth then, the, the, the this year one? Yeah, I was speaking at it, yeah. Oh, my God, I missed that too. I was in a tent. Thanks. You were in a tent a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, the, right. The thing, the thing with, with with that show is, it's kind of the first thing I've done since all this lockdown and everything. And uh, we were plonked in in a tent next to a, a group of guys who basically do uh, dabs for a living. <laughs> we were well, in, honestly, it was absolutely amazing. We were introduced <laughs> to dabs on this weekend in this tent and um i was just out of it for a day a complete day and it was kind of the day that everybody did the talks my, my thing with that show was it was just massively massively um not aimed at consumers it was aimed at businesses really because the the, the everybody was there trying to sell massive lots of their stuff I'm not into the commercial side. I'm into the side where people just get together and have a smoke and chat and like you go around and you buy a few bits and pieces here and there. And I don't really do the commercial ones, but I, I'm sad I missed your, your, your chat as it goes. I missed Guy Coxall as well, which I was sad about. But I managed to meet up with him in the in the, the exhibition hall anyway. So that was yeah. it. Sweet. Well, I, I, I think I'll... I mean, I was um, I was there at a guest of drug science more than anything because they they were doing some of the talks there, yeah. um, and I, they're intending to have much more involvement in it next year. So I, I'm pretty sure I'll be speaking there next year. That's quite okay. impressive setup, really. It's a, it's just a nice venue and it's a nice atmosphere out there with the DJ and music playing. Yeah, as well. it was. It was. We were we were parked miles away. We were in camping grounds that was like the other side of the exhibition, so we had like a ten minute walk to actually get to anything, which was a bit of a pain in the butt. But yeah. you know, we we we've got a big one sorted out for next year as well. We're trying to get like loads of people coming because there was only about three or four of us went this year. Um, it was a bit of a sad. Uh, what's it? A, a bit of a sad turnout from Percy's. I've got to say, lads. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tried. tried I tried. Yeah, well, big commute for me. Next year, then. I mean, I, it may well be that I get to Dublin and Cork be, be, way before next year's uh, Product Earth. But if, if if not, you know, come and seek me out and say hello at Product Earth. Oh, definitely. I'm pretty sure I'll be speaking there next year because I, I, if drug science invite me, I tend to do what they ask me. To be honest. Mm. Yeah. I'll be there myself as well now next year. Oh, yeah. So I look forward to it. you there, boy, testicles, if you say no this time. Yeah, well, that's right. 
Well, that, uh, you know, it was yeah, just yeah. because of the virus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that held me up, eh? That's yeah, all, all right, then. So on, on that note, then, uh, please forgive me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off. No, I've been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for taking the time to come and speak to us and tell us your stories. And if you want to come back again at any point, you know, you've got a book or something or an event you want to tell us about, then feel free to let us know. You're always welcome to come and join us. That's cool. Good good, uh, good virtually meeting you all, folks. Indeed. Yeah. Nice meeting you, Neil. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, man. And keep up the great work you're doing. Nice, awesome interview, man. I hope you all enjoyed it. Now, don't forget you have to go over to percysgrowroom.com now. Do it now, sign up, and get involved in the competitions we're starting over there. Build up your posts because there's more competitions coming very soon where you'll need a certain amount of posts to enter. So you might not be able to enter one now if the, if the posts are too high, but if you start building up your posts, you'll be able to enter the next one, and there's lots of epic comps coming. You don't want to miss those. Uh, also leave a review if you enjoyed that if you enjoy our episodes and you enjoy all the work we do to get these episodes put out every week then please just take five minutes head to itunes or spotify or whatever network you download podcasts from and leave us a review that's really important please do that for us that's that's epic if you do that much appreciated uh of course you can become a patron if you want to as well uh patreon.com slash percy's room you can find us there uh, but not necessary, of course. We'd get out there, share the podcast, and leave reviews, comments, things like that. That's what we want you to do. If you could do that for us, that would be fucking epic. All right. Uh, so we'll see you for Halloween. Don't miss it. Try and get to the YouTube live on Halloween night. We start at 9 p.m. UK time. I don't know what time that is in your time zone, but everybody's welcome to join us. Of course, come along, smoke something, get high, and we'll just talk about some scary stuff and have uh, a nice relaxed live episode so we want you to be there i know you, not everybody can make it because of the time zones but if you can just make the extra effort this week and come and join us for the halloween session on sunday nice one so i'll leave you with it don't forget to like subscribe or whatever you do on your podcast network we'll see you on friday for the session or sunday for the halloween special enjoy your week everybody goodbye